Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. And what a pleasure it is to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who is in a very unique club. There's only about uh, 70 track and field Olympic medals in the possession of Australians, and my guest has one of them. He won that at Barcelona in the high jump, one of the highly competitive events at any track and field meet. His name is Tim Forsyth, and I'm happy to say that Tim's on the line. Good to talk to you, mate. Thanks for having me on, Peter. It seems like a long time ago, Barcelona, 25 years, 26 years ago, pretty close to that. Does it seem like a long time to you? Yes, it does. It, it almost seems like a separate life to me. Yeah. Like I've lived two and that was one. It's, uh, it was very different to the, the life that I lead now and it certainly was a long time ago. You know, I was 18 years old. I turned 19 just after I competed and yes, um, it, uh, it was kind of a moment that changed my life. We'll talk more about Barcelona and obviously that wonderful competition, that wonderful moment for you, but you talk about your lifestyle now. What are you up to these days? I'm um, working at a primary school down in Dramana on the Mornington Peninsula. And what are you doing there? Education support staff. So um, running a mindfulness program with the kids um, and also sort of looking after some special needs kids as well, autism and behavioural stuff. So good fun. Every day is a bit different. Yeah, and obviously something you'd be passionate about, I would think. Yeah, I, I do really enjoy it. It's, um, you know, the the uh, the mental side of high jump as much as the physical side interests me and um, sort of stepping into the behavioural side of kids is um, something that I'm also quite interested in. I've sort of landed in over time. So, um, you know, I get to, I guess, uh, give a little bit of a few of the things that I've explored in my time sort of post high jump and um yeah and I, I do really enjoy it do all the kids know they've got an olympic medalist in their presence or do you keep that pretty low key oh look they they do um i guess i'm just part of the furniture there now i've been <laughs> there um nearly two years and you know the occasionally um, someone new will visit the school and it'll get sort of shared around and the story sort of comes up again and obviously commonwealth games years and olympic years the story comes up again but um, other than that I'm just part of the furniture Yeah, a very special part of the furniture no doubt because I said uh, in the intro that you're in a very exclusive club Uh, the medal, how often does it come out? Interesting story I don't know where it is at the moment Really, we've misplaced it in the the last um, year or so I went to get it out um, probably be a 
about a month and a half back and it wasn't in its usual spot and so we're at a bit of a loss as to where it could possibly be. I know that we've moved into this house nearly two years ago. I know it's here somewhere, I just don't know where, I can't put my hands on it. So, does, um, does that fill you full around. of dread, the fact that you can't find it? Oh, look, the, from the point of view that my kids didn't see any of it, so mm. um, I guess that's a connection for my kids. Uh, I came through in an era where there's not a lot of video of um, of me jumping and that sort of stuff, so they don't connect in that way either. So they, they connect through stories and being able to hold things like that. Um, for me, look, it's the memories and the the you know I guess the 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 emotional connection to it um, that I value the most. Yeah. So that's what I remember. That's the feelings and that sort of stuff. I don't, you know, holding the medal or putting it around my neck. That's you know, it's a product of what I did, not not what I did. Do you reflect on the fact that you are in that exclusive club that I spoke about? Because I think at last count, I think there were seventy-one. Um, track and field okay. medals for Australia. So it is a very, very exclusive club. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, at the time, I had no idea what I'd done, and I certainly had no idea how hard it was to do what I'd done um, and how, how hard it was going to be to replicate. Um, I sort of felt that at the time I was on the, the start of something pretty huge. And then, you know, life takes hold, and um, things got pretty difficult after that, and everything that I achieved beyond that was a product of a lot of very, very hard work, whereas Barcelona was probably more, I guess, the culmination of my natural talent mm. where that got me. You know, there was a little bit of hard work leading into that, but really only baby steps. You know, the the really hard stuff um, came after that and and every success that I had post that moment was um, was well and truly earned. So what was the difficulty, Tim? Was it the fact that you were your body was maturing because you were, as you said, 18, 19 years of age at Barcelona? It was done on raw talent in lots of ways, but your body changed after that. Yeah, yeah, and as it does for everyone, you know, it's, as you get older, it's a, it's a little bit hard to stay so lean and your metabolism changes. And um, I guess the, the challenge is to be able to replicate high performance regularly. Um, and that's not as easy as what it sounds. You know, it's to come out and do sort of what I did at Barcelona. I'd had a very good lead into that. You know, I'd had a really good couple of months in Europe and um, been really successful and had been jumping really, really well. So I went to Barcelona with a lot of confidence. Um, and then, you know, things like injuries and that sort of stuff, which you just don't bank on. And um, you can you can try and manage that side of things to avoid it, but you know, sometimes things just happen and, and quite often the injuries that you get as an athlete are there as a lesson um, that you need to learn and um, and that impacts your your, your, um, your training and everything going in and your preparation. And and so you can, you know, one injury can easily ruin a season. And um, when, you're, when you're at the start of your career, it seems like there's an endless amount of seasons. But as you get closer and closer to the end, it's um, you sort of feel the pressure of time as well. What's the high jumper's injury? Because we know the sprinter's bane is probably the hamstring. What's the predominant injury that high jumpers get? Oh, look, I had a had a little bit of ankle trouble. Um, you know, the the amount of force that goes through your ankle on takeoff in a very unnatural way is quite remarkable. My left ankle doesn't bend very well anymore. Uh, walking up hills is particularly difficult. 
Um, you know, it's a marked difference between my left and right hand side. Um, my big one's my back. That's caused yeah. me a lot of troubles, sort of during my career, but also post. Um, there's been periods of time where it's been pretty good, and I felt like I was through it, and and then it rears its ugly head again. You know, so being so tall and lean. Um, I guess the lower part of my spine is a lot more vulnerable than it would be for you know someone of average height. Not to mention, you know, ergonomically, the the world isn't suited for people that are six foot six and a half. Yeah, was it worth it, Tim, having to put up with what you are putting up with later in life? I oh, look, I, I do get asked the question often. You know, do I miss it? Was it worth it? Things like that. I don't miss it for a second, mm. but I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Um, what I learned, what I got to experience, um, you know, you can't put a price on that. And if having a few little dodgy spots in my body that need to be managed is the price that I've had to pay, you know what, it's uh, it's probably pretty cheap. The number of times I needed to pinch myself to know that this was real, um, it's, um, you know, and you say a select club in terms of the medals. I know sitting down with Jai Tarima after the 2000 Olympics, after he'd won his silver medal, mm. and... It felt for the first time in a long time, I felt um, comfortable in a conversation with someone who I know had experienced something that I'd experienced. Yeah. And uh, I remember one night sort of sitting with him quietly, having a few beers, and um, the conversation was was very comfortable. And we both sort of felt really at ease with each other because we shared that. And um, we sort of acknowledged the fact that it wasn't something that a lot of people have experienced. And so, you know, if, if that's the club, then that's the club. But um, it's it's strange to talk about it because I don't think people can understand if you haven't achieved it, if you haven't done it and you, you experience the emotion that comes with that and the occasion, um, the Olympic Games itself, even just to get there, it's unreal. If there's magic in the world, then perhaps that's it. I remember well the um, the uniform, the tracksuit that they had for the Barcelona Games because uh, the boys at Adidas, Jimmy Tanzi and the boys at Adidas actually gave me one. It looked as though they had targets painted on them. They were certainly um, uh, a very unique tracksuit back in those days in 1992. <laughs> yeah. they, they went out on a limb with that one. I they tell did. You, a lot of the uniform that we had for that one has... Uh, it hasn't stood the test of time. No. <laughs> um, quite a few items from that kit uh, ended up in my kids' dress-up box and has been brought out at various times. It's quite humorous. and uh, <laughs> so, But at the time, you know, you've got to understand it was the early 90s. And, yeah. And that's what we did. And the mullet, of course, was uh, very big in those days too for many of us. Yes, yes. The, the mullet, one of the, uh, the walkers, um, he was a, was a hairdresser. And um, yeah, so he uh, he did my hair when we first got to Barcelona. It was getting a bit long, and he did my hair. And I had the great idea of uh, what about if I went really short on the sides but left the long at the back? And yeah, it was um, <laughs> not realizing uh, perhaps what was about to happen and how um, that was going to be viewed so many times. Um, perhaps if I had have known what was going to be happening, maybe I might have chosen a maybe a slightly more conservative option. Ah, yes. The best vision you can have is twenty twenty <laughs> hindsight all these years down the track, oh, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When we come back on the other side of the break, we'll find out where it all began for Tim Forsyth. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Tim after the break. 
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And it's a great pleasure to have Olympic medalist Tim Forsyth as my guest on the program this morning. Tim, where did it all begin? In a little town called Merbu North, I think. Yeah, that's where I was born, down in uh, mid-Gippsland. Um, we lived uh, down in Trafalgar when I, after that, um, and then moved up and I spent most of my sort of childhood on a farm uh, in, near a little town called Narrican, but closer to another town called Thorpedale. Uh, did all my schooling down in Trafalgar and then as soon as I finished school, I was off to the big smoke. Were you a Bombers supporter as a kid because you had a family connection to the club? Yes, Dad played for the Bombers back through the, the early 60s before moving to Adelaide. Um, I, I probably was as a youngster. Um, back in those days, there was the zones. Uh, we were in Hawthorne zone. When I went to primary school, pretty much every friend that I made barracked for Hawthorne, so I switched to Hawthorne at that stage. And every time that we had footy players come down to do clinics and that sort of stuff, they were always Hawthorne players. And um, Yeah, so I switched to Hawthorne. I've been Hawthorne ever since. Well, you've had some pretty good moments then. You've been lucky. Yeah, it's been reasonable. Yeah, um, reasonable. But, you know, even <laughs> through, the, uh, through the 80s there with all of the uh, the big grand finals between Hawthorne and Essendon, it was quite interesting. Yeah, those ones in 84 and 85 in particular. Um, and the big blue in 85, I remember that one when it happened over on the other side of the ground and every player on the ground was involved in it. It was one of the indelible memories of grand finals. It, yes, it certainly was, and, and once again sort of highlighted an era, um, which is very different to the way football's played these days. But, uh, but you know, I, I had a strong connection with Essendon, and, um, you know, I've been to a few past players, things with Dad, and spent a little bit of time at the club through the, the late 90s. Did a fair bit of training at Hawthorne as well um, through the mid to late 90s. So, um, you know, it was probably one of the things that I struggled with the most with athletics was the isolation. Mm. You know, it's very much an individual sport. Um, a lot of your training's done on your own. You know, you had training partners at different times and you might be able to jump in for certain parts of your training with certain people, but it's it's really done by yourself. So I really enjoyed the the opportunity to go down to Hawthorne and, you know, not do the same weight program as, as the players were doing, but at least be in the, the gym with a whole bunch of guys. And so there was a bit of banter and things would move a little bit quicker. But uh, so I enjoyed that at, at certain times in my career to be a part of that environment for a, for a small piece anyway. Now, as a six foot six guy, uh, you probably would have made a reasonable tap ruckman. Did you show any aptitude at the game at footy? Oh, look, I played. We um, I remember playing my first game in the under 15s when I was about ten. So that sort of taught me to be absolutely terrified. <laughs> um, and I was uh, as I sort of grew, as I got closer to to being sort of of age. Um, yeah, I sort of moved from being the back pocket to the, the forward pocket to onto the wing, and then all of a sudden I was at, you know, centre-half forward and then all finished in the ruck So as I got taller and taller. so But look, it probably wasn't going to achieve anything like what I achieved in high jump. My, my one, number one passion was probably basketball. Um, played a lot of tennis as a, as a young kid, played a lot of um, tournaments and stuff around our area, one few of those. So um, I did enjoy... I did have... Uh, a fierce uh, competitiveness as, as a kid, um, but probably enjoyed basketball the most. Now, speaking of athletics, and, and this is the basis for our program, but it wasn't always something that you were in love with as a kid. In fact, is the story true about you in 1988 when the high jump was on, on the telly, and your dad said to you, OK, have a look at it? And 
what did you do instead? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so mum actually wrote, um, yelled out to me. I was outside shooting baskets, and mum yelled out that the high jump was on the telly, and I sort of went, oh, no, I ended up mowing the lawn, which is, <laughs> if you knew me, that was probably unheard of. That was the last thing that I'd do. That showed how bored I was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just you know, absolutely no interest at all in the the previous year, and then within four years, not only was I at the Olympic Games, but I was also a medalist. So that was, um, I guess, that showed the meteoric rise. You know, I um, I remember I, I reckon it was October '88 that I first started training with a coach. So I was sort of on the verge and and had been doing high jump through school, but certainly in those '88 games, I wasn't taking it seriously. Who was your first coach? My first coach was the coach through most of my career, which is uh, a, a PE teacher at Melbourne High School called Sandro Bezzetto. Yeah. So I stayed with Sandro right through until my very last year. Um, and to be honest with you, the only one regret that I have for my whole career is uh, is leaving Sandro in that last year, sort of leading into the Sydney Olympics, um, trying to find an answer to something that probably didn't have an answer. So, you know, that was... Uh, I was tired by the end of my career in, in my late 20s was ready to, to move on, just probably needed needed to realise it. Yeah, and I've often spoken to athletes over the years, there, there comes a natural point in the coach-athlete relationship where you need to seek something else. Was that what happened to you at that time of the Sydney Olympics or was it just um, another reason? Um, I'd had some injuries I've had a couple of pretty difficult years. Um, you know, 98 was a really difficult year. I, um, sort of, I, I sprained my ankle leading into the 98 Commonwealth Games. Um, 99, uh, I just didn't, I didn't prepare well. I had a really horrible World Championships in 99, and I just knew that I was tired. I needed a break, and I didn't have a chance to have a break. You know, the, the intensity leading into Sydney... I don't think anyone understands what that was like, um, having an Olympic Games in your home country and everyone saying how wonderful that was going to be and what a great opportunity. There was a, a massive amount of pressure that went along with that, um, and it was it was all consuming. It was it was like a wave. So I I can vividly remember I was at a you know um, South Bank was just being developed at that time um, in '94 when they announced the, um, that Sydney had the Olympics. We were at a they had a bit of a function there at one of the clubs um, right on the water. And they sort of, and, and one Antonio Samaranch said, you know, the winner is Sydney. And there was a massive hype and massive celebration. And from that moment, mm. uh, a six-year plan was put in place. And it led right up until the 23rd of September in the year 2000. And that was the day I was going to compete. That was the, that was the final. And um, everything Everything was planned, every moment, everything, every training session, and but nothing after. And I still remember getting back to the... I, I came 13th, um, so just missed the, the final by one spot, which was bitterly disappointing, but I'd, I'd had a lot of injury and, to be honest with you, felt lucky to even get there um, in the end. And I remember getting back to the village and sitting down on my bed... I was uh, rooming with the decathlete Scott Ferrier at the time and he was out and I sat down in the bed and I put my bag down next to my seat and I just sat there and I didn't know what to do. I, I realised that at that moment everything up until that day had been planned but nothing after. I had no idea what to do and I, I don't know what happened but 
I kind of came to. I went into a bit of a state, I guess, and I came to and the whole room was dark. I'd been sitting there for about four hours and uh, and just hadn't realised and had no idea what to do. And I just remember the months sort of after that, I guess it was probably a depressive state. You know, I had just had no idea what to do. Didn't know whether I wanted to keep jumping. Didn't know whether I wanted to retire. Didn't know what to do. Um, had to have ankle surgery. So that was kind of the next thing on the radar. So I just did that and um, had some complications with that and that sort of pretty much spelled the end of my career. So that the idea of having that home Olympics and the opportunity that that afforded us, as exciting as it was and as amazing an experience as it was, it was also really, really daunting. And inevitably there was going to be a letdown for a lot, but if you're getting towards the end of your career, then that state you're talking about is possibly likely to hit you and and a lot of other athletes. And they've talked about the roar of the crowd sometimes and the the, um, addictiveness of that, but they've also talked about the sense of purpose and by the sound of it, that's what you're saying. You had that singular sense of purpose at, at least for seven years when Sydney was yeah. announced, but then after that, all of a sudden, the day it finishes, that sense of purpose goes out the door. Yeah, it did. And, um, <laughs> excuse me, it was... It was so... As I said before, it was so all-consuming, and I was right in the zone. You know, I was around my 27th birthday. I was right in the zone at the, at the Olympic Games in Sydney. And so after achieving what I'd achieved in 92, two years later to have that opportunity put in front of us... Um, I think, you know, in discussions with my coach at the time, we kind of felt a responsibility to it. You know, this was, it was kind of like all the ducks were lining up and like we were sort of got the feeling of maybe there's some, you know, maybe there's something in this, you know, everything's sort of lining up for us. This is, this is the way things are meant to go. And, um, and so to then sort of kick off each year as we went, trying to achieve certain things each year. And, but then, you know, I don't know whether we we'd probably just what we didn't put in there is the rest periods, is the opportunity to get away, is the opportunity to to um, stay fresh. <laughs> so by the time we got to to Sydney, I was tired. I was so tired, and I'd, I'd had so much difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often touch on this subject and these days we hear about sporting organisations and the AFL has been pretty active in this to look after sports people when they get to the end of their careers. Do you think that that was something that was neglected in your time that there could have been more done for athletes to try and cope with this period? You said it lasted four months for you and I'm sure it's lasted a lot longer for some along the way. Look, um, we had we had things like the Olympic job opportunity program. So that the idea of what was going to happen after sport was certainly spoken about. I know the Victorian Institute of Sport um, had an arm that was very much geared towards preparing athletes for post. So it was a discussion that was being had, um, which has evolved to probably what it is today. But I guess those discussions started happening during that period of time. Um, So I was, I, I can't, I can't blame the sport for not preparing me. I, I didn't prepare myself. Mm. I, um, I I was certainly put in situations where I could have, but I couldn't see that. You know, I was a, I wasn't still am a very single-minded person. I, I I like to focus in on one thing and get things done, and I'm very goal-driven, and um, and that's the way I operated. I couldn't have 
you know, two or three things burning away at the one time and feel like I could do any of them well. I really sort of felt like I needed to, to, to narrow my focus. So, you know, I was um, linked up with uh, Australia Post and I had some different job opportunities through there and worked with them for some time. Um, but never really looked at that as, as something that I would like to move on to post. Um, so I really didn't do anything to prepare myself. You know, I was never really interested in further study. Um, so I really just focused in on what I was doing. Everything for me was around training and competing. And I spent a lot of time overseas each year, um, which sounds wonderful. But, um, yeah. you know, these days uh, the communication so much easier. In, in those days, you know, communicating with home was always done via fax or, you know, the odd phone call here and there if you could afford it at the time. So it was it was very, very different, very isolating. So, you know, it was uh, to spend three or four months each year overseas um, sort of pretty much by yourself, sort of maybe travelling with different groups at different times. It was, you know, it was pretty intense. It was, it was a marvellous life, um, but it got a little bit old. <laughs> Yeah. That period you spoke about that began when you sat on your bed after the Olympic Games representation in 2000 and lasted for four months. What brought you out of that, Tim? Was there a moment that all of a sudden the switch was flicked and you thought, I've just got to do something about this? Uh, So I had one surgery on my ankle, um, which was, I reckon it would have been towards the end of 2000, right near the end, so maybe November, December. I uh, had some complications with that, so we needed a second surgery and then a third, which pretty much emptied out the bank balance. And so I do remember getting in touch with Athletics Australia, sort of saying, is there anything I can do, you know, some clinics or something? I just need to get some cash. And they um, they had a, a thing to go up into uh, northern the Northern Territory, and there was a few places that were trying to get little athletics going again. And they, it was just like a bit of a promotional tour, go up there, you know, talk to some school kids, do some clinics. Um, and it was supposed to be a sort of a bit of a whirlwind two-week visit. Um, so we went up there. I did some, spent some time in Catherine and um, we did a little bit up in the Tiwi Islands and a little bit around Darwin. And then we went out into northeast Arnhem Land to a little town called Nullanboy, which is on the Gove Peninsula. Um, so it's pretty much on the northeastern tip of the Northern Territory, deep in Arnhem Land. And um, my wife was with me. And we just fell in love with the place. We were supposed to be there two days. We ended up getting to the end of that. We changed our flight, stayed for three, stayed for four, ended up staying for seven days. And both of us had tears in our eyes when we were leaving. And we just, it, it sort of felt right. We, we had a calling. So we got home, lasted about three months back down in Melbourne and then um, both quit, you know, quit our jobs and, and headed up. And we um, we sold our cars and we we bought a uh, oh no sorry the first time we um we had two free flights everyone all of the athletes from sydney got two free flights on ansett anywhere in australia so we used those flights to get up into gove again incidentally that was the during the time when ansett went to funk so our return tickets disappeared (laughs) Um, we had to stay there for long enough to um support our way home and um we just fell in love with the place and so over the course of the next four years we we spent about uh, probably three and a half years up there living up in northeast Arnhem Land. Um, and for me, I guess it was a place where no one knew who I was. So I, probably a big part for me when I finished uh, track and field was who was I? So if I wasn't Tim Forsyth, the high jumper anymore, then who was I? And I had a lot of trouble with that question. And so heading up there to a place where no one knew me, 
was an opportunity for me to find out what sort of a person was I, you know, because was everyone being nice to me because I was a good person or was everyone being nice to me because I'd won the Olympic medal, mm. you know, so I had to try and work that out. And um, so going up there and, and meeting a, some wonderful people that really just changed my life and, um, and you know, it influences me to this day. So that was huge. That was the big thing that sort of the, the world turned a little bit for me and I, and I found my next footing. Um, and we, we only just came back from there uh, when my wife was about halfway pregnant with my first son. And are you still active in Indigenous communities? It's obviously touched you. We can hear that in your voice. Is that something that you're still involved with? Look, I have been at times, probably for the last few years, not quite so much. We still have very, very close friends up there, you know, albeit almost family, um, that we stay in touch with as much as we can. Um, but we don't, unfortunately, travel up as much as we would like to. Um, and so perhaps there'll be another time in our lives where we'll start doing that again a bit more. But, um, yeah, we're sort of very, very strongly connected into that place. And, um, you know, I had a wonderful job up there where I was I was travelling around to all the remote communities and um, doing athletics clinics at first. And then I got a job with AFL Northern Territory and was setting up Auskick clinics in all of the remote Aboriginal communities, which so it was just a marvellous job. Some, uh, some amazing experiences through that one as well. And it's a very difficult thing to go into any community where you are an outsider and, and gain that acceptance. And that's obviously something that you did gain and it's obviously something that meant a lot to you. Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. Um, you know, I, I guess I was so naive. I didn't realise that there was places in Australia where people didn't speak English. Yeah. You know, I was naive enough to think that everyone in Australia spoke English. So going up there for the first time, I still remember the first talk that I did at a, um, a remote Aboriginal school. I got about two minutes into my talk and realised that these kids had absolutely no idea what I was saying. And um, that really blew me away. I had no idea that that was the case. You know, and for a lot of the, the people that I met, English was their fourth or fifth language. Um and so it just opened up a whole new world for me. And I, to, to me, it was magical. And it really, um, it really changed my life, um, just getting involved in that and, and being accepted into it and becoming a part of it was, uh, was just wonderful for me and for my wife, you know. My, um, my kids have we've, we've kept my kids connected in as well. So Came at a good time, obviously, after uh, the period you spoke about, just after the Olympic Games. We'll take a break, Tim. When we come back, I want to talk to you about another footy connection that you had when you were training as a youngster. And there was also a very athletic youngster who was training alongside of you who went on to make his mark in the game of Australian football. We'll talk more about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Tim Forsyth is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Fascinating chat with Tim Forsyth, the Olympic medalist from Barcelona in 1992. And as we're finding out, a man of uh, a whole lot more substance than just being a great athlete. Speaking of great athletes, Tim, when you were a young man and you were training under Sandro, there was uh, another athlete at the time who was emerging through the ranks. He went on to make his mark in footy, a fellow by the name of, well, we know him as Cooter. Yeah, he um, he was tough. He he was a he was a remarkable athlete, and, and I, I I just remember the coaches talking about him and how special he was, and and what he what he could have done. Um, 
you know, it took me a long while to beat him. Um, I think I reckon I only maybe beat him twice. And they were, I think, the last two times we ever competed against each other. And and then he, you know, went on and got um, and signed the contract with Carlton and moved over to footy. And I remember bumping into him years later and we were at a few different functions around the place and, and, and having a good chat. And we always felt an affinity with each other and um, about the paths, I guess, we'd chosen and, um, I do remember bumping into him in a, a, around, I reckon it was 96 or 97 somewhere, and he was saying how hard things had become in footy and the fact that, you know, he was he was targeted physically so much because he was of what he could do and he was uh, he's saying how his body was feeling old. and um, But, you know, he was, in athletic terms, you know, it, it be, would be very exciting for someone like that to have two lives so that they could choose both paths. Yeah. So we could all enjoy what he would have done on the athletic field as well. You know, he was remarkable. He was beating me in the high jump, beating Kyle van der Kuyp in the hurdles at the time and also throwing the distance and the javelin, you know, very, very long ways. And, yeah, you just sort of wonder, well, you know, and with that sort of physique, it was, um, you know, almost designed around... Um, the decathlon, you know, and yeah, I was, I was going to say to he, handle the the rigors of it. Yeah, he is the prototype decathlete, really, isn't he? Because he is, he, he, he really ha- is. He had that body that would have been so adaptable to all of those multi disciplines that you need to have. Yeah, and you know, you need to be so resilient in your body yeah. to be a decathlete because of the rigors of what you're asked to do, and he just sort of seemed to have that physique that could have handled it. You know, you um. Yeah, he had that muscular shoulders, but he wasn't sort of too big around the hips, so he wasn't carrying too much weight and uh, very powerful, very explosive and fast. All of those traits that we looked at him on the footy field and went, geez, look at this guy. You know, the fact he was running around holding the footy in one hand. And, mm. um, you know, yeah, there's a few sort of footy players over the year that you look at and sort of think, oh, gee, I wonder what they would have done. In, uh, in track and field circles and there was probably a few track and field guys that we thought the other way as well. Yeah. And when you were training with him, when you when you saw that athletic presence he had, did he have that presence about him? Because he's a, I know Keter, he's a very quiet, unassuming sort of guy and I think the attention doesn't necessarily sit that well with him, but he still has that presence. He had it on the football field. Did he have it when you were young men growing up and training together? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't really get to know him until after he went to footy. Um, you know, I competed against him and we'd sat and the high jump fan was usually a fairly friendly place. There was the odd instance here and there where it wasn't so friendly, but um, but by and large, it was a relatively friendly place. But he was a fairly quiet bloke. And when, when you're quiet and you're also winning... Um, you'd sort of not when you're not the one winning you're not sure whether that person is arrogant or whether they're just quiet mm. so it wasn't until afterwards you know that you sort of think is he, is he not talking to me because he thinks he's too good or is he not talking to me because he's a bit quiet and um, it wasn't until afterwards that we yeah we really hit it off and we've always had a real affinity even though we don't really see each other uh, anymore we've bumped into each other's at functions and stuff around the place over the years but um, we've always felt an affinity and, and felt that our, I guess our lives, you know, crossed there for a moment, and, and then we went in our in, in our own ways. And 
um, yeah, he's a, he's a lovely, lovely fella who's doing wonderful things these days as well. Yeah, he's a great man, Cooter. A very, very fine man. Uh, you talked about the affinity, Tim, that you had with him. You talked about the affinity you had in that conversation with Jai Tarima all those years ago. And you talked about the High Jump family and the fact that you are... Uh, well, you had that empathy because you each know what the other is going through. And you said sometimes, the fa- well, most of the time the family's pretty tight-knit and there are other times when it's not. When was the time that you felt as though the family wasn't that tight-knit? Was there one particular athlete or was it just a feeling that you got? There's been a couple over the years. There was one, I guess, um, going through, I guess during my high school years, there was a, there was a fella from New South Wales that was pretty lippy. Mm. And the, um, there was a bit of agitation out on the high jump fan, which was quite rare. And, you know, there was, uh, I guess, a bit of trash talking and that sort of stuff, which was really rare for me in, in, in my time in the high jump. Um, and then there was, you know, some similar characters when you competed internationally that would try and get in your head and um, be quite vocal when they were out there. But by and large, you know, generally speaking, once people were, once competitors were out, um, they'd stay around and they'd kind of help coach you and maybe give you a bit of advice about what you could do. And I think we sort of understood that some days people were just on and they were hard to beat. And it was nice to sit back and enjoy it. Yeah, and uh, a bit of a, a brotherhood um, amongst the, your fellow competitors, which uh, in these days of professional sport is something that is pretty rare. It certainly is. I mean, I I even went and lived in America for about four months uh, towards uh, was through '99 and trained with Charles Austin, who was the Olympic champion in '96. Mm. Um, you know, and he welcomed me into his home. My wife came over with me. We were only just married, and we lived with him and trained with him. And he just basically carted us around his life, and uh, and it was marvelous. And you know, I had really strong connections. I've kept in touch with a few of the. The other athletes that I competed against, you know, there was others at other times that welcomed us into their homes and looked after us for, for periods of time. And it's, um, you know, the connection, that brotherhood that we've made in high jump is, has served me really, really well. And it, I just don't, I, I don't know whether it was a remarkable time in, in, in high jumping history and, or whether it was always like that. I don't know. It's been a fascinating chat. Unfortunately, as always on this program, time is against us. So we're going to take our final break and then we'll be back to wrap it up on the other side of that break. Tim Forsyth has been my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives every day of the year. And we'll be back to wrap things up with Tim on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Our final segment with Tim Forsyth. Tim, we spoke about the beautiful place where you won that Olympic medal in Barcelona. Another beautiful little place where you had some success in 94 at the Commonwealth Games was that lovely little spot in Victoria, Canada and that stadium where you took the gold medal and it also was the stadium where Cathy Freeman carried the two flags around the track after she won there and Arthur Tunstall got involved. It was a memorable Commonwealth Games in all sorts of ways. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? It was, um, yeah, I guess that was the, the coming of age of Cathy Freeman yeah. at those ones. Um, you know, I remember being out on, um, I think I had the qualifying for the high jump at the time when she was carrying the two flags around and, um, and, and cheering her on as she ran past. And sort of, yeah, through the, through the 90s, Cathy and I had a very strong relationship. Our first team together was 1990. We were both about 16 in the World Junior Championships and, um, we sort of became good friends there and, and that stayed um, right through both of our careers. And 
uh, really enjoyed watching Cassie and Cassie had a house in London that I used to stay in um, when we were over there and yeah it was uh, she had a remarkable career and was almost embarrassed by the hype a lot of the time yeah. she felt really uncomfortable with the, the with the fame that she had achieved and but um, you know she was very driven I learned a lot from Cassie as well just the way that she went about her business and she's very very driven um, knew what she wanted to get didn't talk about it a whole lot but um yeah, yeah, we had a we had a really close relationship, which I really enjoyed. We've spoken a bit about empathy, and you um, elaborated on the expectations for seven years after Sydney was named. I'm sure because of that empathy that you had in your situation, you more than most people would have been able to understand a little bit what Cathy went through in that seven years, and that is why we saw that look on her face when she crossed the line that night in Sydney. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, she, she'd had that same lead-in. She was the same age of me. She was right in the zone. Yeah. And um, the amount of work and pressure that had gone with that, um, because you knew the opportunity that sat in front of you. Most people never get to um, compete in an Olympic Games, let, go, let alone compete in the Olympic Games in their own country, let alone compete in the Olympic Games in their own country right at the right age. Um, so that the opportunity there to actually do something incredibly special for your country um, is is right there, and it's um, it's a you know it's a once in a thousand years type of thing, you know, and and so if you know that gold medal won at any other Olympics from her would have you would have seen unbridled joy, but for her it was the amount of time and effort and thought and and direction that had gone into her achieving that. The, the ultimate reaction was reaction was relief. Oh, I did it. And I, I understand that, you know, it was because that's what the lead into Sydney was about. It it was excitement in 94, but uh, it became something else by the time that those Olympics came around. Were you in the stadium that famous night? Yes, I was, yeah. yeah. We, we went in to watch that one and, um, yeah. And one, and that had a... That, that race had an air of inevitability about it, about it as well. You yeah. Know, it was... You could almost tell what was going to happen. Um, and I guess to most of us, the fear was about what if it doesn't? Mm. You know, there was a genuine fear around that for Cathy that what if this doesn't happen? Um, but you can, you know, if you go to Bruce McAvaney's call, you can almost tell that he knew it was going to happen too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, all of us knew that this, there was no way the universe wasn't going to let that happen that night. And Raylene's words uh, when Cathy sat down on the track and, and Bruce said, what a champion, and Raylene said, what a relief. And I think we all yeah. felt that sense along with her that night. Well, you've given us plenty of joy over the years. That magical moment in Barcelona where you stood on the dais with Javier Sotomayor and and then that moment in Victoria, Canada, all the way through. But as we've found out today, there's a whole lot more to Tim Forsyth than just being able to be a very, very good high jumper. It's been a pleasure to chat to you, mate. Lovely to catch up with you, and we wish you well. Yeah, likewise, Peter. Thank you very much for having me on. Tim Forsyth has been my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, and we will celebrate the life of another fine Australian athlete next week, same time, right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.